HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit HeritageFoodsUSA.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Can you dig it? We're back. I think our guest just photobombed a date table, a date, a date <laughs> selfie. The, the awkward date table is rocking today. I got to say, these people look very happy. They definitely got laid last night. And I want to I talk about what's on their plates. The guy eating the salad, which I fucking love because she's chowing down on a It's pancake. like a mountain of pancakes and a slab of bacon the size of Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm. yeah, that's... Think, who needs the protein more? <laughs> oh, like he no, he's, he's texting though now. This oh, is it. This he's is, probably, he's this probably is about changing to go south. his Facebook status to in a relationship <laughs> right now. They are wearing the glow. The or, he's, glow. Or, or even worse, he's sending it to his mother. Look, I got laid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Judy, I saw you out last night at the Nick Cave uh, hoo-ha out in Prospect Park. Saw you digging his downer jams. Oh, my God. I so dug his downer jams. <laughs> he played almost all my faves. Um, and everyone I was with, you, um, your girlfriend... Mm. Janet and uh, a friend we just met, Jennifer. Nobody else has ever seen him before. I've seen him a bunch of times. He's in great form. Yeah, it was the first time that I uh, that I did see Nick Cave. It was uh, more Jim Morrison than I expected. Fuck you. <laughs> the Bozo, Bozo Diamonds. <laughs> yeah, Jim Morrison. I'm getting a little Jim Morrison. Um, but the good Jim, you know, I think Jim Morrison is like the guy who's like overrated, no. overrated by morons, but underrated by people who, I actually who, like who don't want to deal with him because he's so overrated by morons. I listened to the soft parade maybe last year after not hearing it for a zillion years, and it sounded good to me. Yeah, how much pot were you smoking? <laughs> Tons. Yeah, see? You don't have to smoke pot to enjoy Nick Cave. Maybe a glass of red wine. He's sober, you know. <laughs> Um, now, yeah, but he had a 30-year heroin habit. <laughs> Better late than never. 
<laughs> he's in fantastic shape. I kind of want to go tomorrow, tonight. He, saw, he sounded good. Um, Jim Morrison plus a little Elvis I was getting, and maybe uh, you know, oh, a, do- oh, a dollop of Bowie. You're so, you are dead to me. Your musical taste <laughs> is dead to me. I was hearing heroes, scary monsters. I love all that no, stuff. No, they, they said he sounded great last night. Yeah, um, he's a- a talented gentleman, very good. Uh, absolutely, a lot of um weird crowd though, right? I mean, you took a picture of like oh. like <laughs> someone her, with their camper chair and, and, the, and the chick on her boyfriend's shoulders, like it was a Leonard Skinner concert. Yeah, and her in her batik <laughs> pants and her friendship bracelet. Well, you know, someone told them they should like Nick Cave, and then there they were. Yeah, well, I think that was the case with a lot of the crowd. A lot of the crowd was very Park Slope, which is when Christine said, oh, I don't know if I should bring my yoga mat to sit on. I'm like, please, you'll fit right in. They were selling kale. They were sending out platters of kale to the concert goers. Like, come, that, how Park Slope is that? I just assumed that was a tribute to John Kale. Oh. Who I also heard present in the whole Nick Cave experience. Okay, I'm very How happy. How did you make a face at John Cale? <laughs> Underrated solo. No, it was my joke. It was It was that, and it was. The, I heard it last night too. And the residual, oh, okay. the kale, the the lingering scent of kale salad, <laughs> wafting wafting through the concert grounds. I'm so glad there's a kale shortage now. It did not come for a well, better vegetable. That is post postmodernism. Okay, right there. That kale is now popular. Yeah. And I think that, like, uh, what's next? Like, egg, egg, um, uh, uh, Brussels sprouts? They'll I love never Brussels be sexy. sprouts. Brussels sprouts are good. Brussels sprouts are you're good. never going to see, like, a lot of smug people having a Brussels sprout smoothie, though, because it doesn't really <laughs> lend itself to smoothieing. No, it'd be like a fart smoothie. Yeah, it would be like a fart. I lived right next door to a cabbage factory before I got. <laughs> it, was, it was like a cabbage processing plant. And they would chop up the cabbage for egg rolls and then, car- then like, scoop them down the street to be, you know, turned into egg rolls. Wait, was this in your New Jersey days? No, this was in w- Williamsburg before they turned the- It was a truck place. Then it was a cabbage processing plant. Now it's a fabulous condo. <laughs> but we called it the Fart Cloud Building because it always smelled like a giant fart. And, and so we should introduce our guests because I'm talking Direct from much. the Fart Cloud City, <laughs> Rigel 4. <laughs> um... Here he is. He's the director of the entirely awesome movie, and I'm not just saying that because I'm in it. Uh, back, yeah, he is. back issues, the Hustler magazine story. It's our good friend uh, Michael Nirenberg, but uh, we call him Mike because we haven't slept with him. <laughs> okay, but it's still early in the show. <laughs> That's true. It's we a, do have a break in the middle. It's, it's the hierarchy. It's like um, pe- people who sleep with me and my mom and my brothers call me Michael. Everybody else gets Mike. And then for customs officials and law enforcement, it's Mr. Edison. I insist. Did you have a? <laughs> But, but did you did you take on Edison after you came to New York? Uh, it was it was a very organic transition. Because you must have a real Jewy last <laughs> oh, name I somewhere seen, back there. Oh yeah, Zimmerman or, or Zimmer- Roth Schultz Jew. Something. David Lee Roth or yeah, something. Yeah, right? Rothstein. <laughs> yeah, you know. So me, me and uh, Bobby Z and uh, and um, <laughs> yeah. Tony Randall, we're just assimilating. (laughs) We'll all see each other. I'm trying to pass. We'll all see each other in Florida at some point. (laughs) In Boca. (laughs) It'll get us in the end. It will. So uh, your your movie's fantastic, The Hustler Magazine Story. Thank you. And it does indeed tell the story of Hustler Magazine, which is... uh, I'm very proud to have uh, written for uh, Hustler and been involved in the whole story. And um, uh, Larry Flint is a great hero. Of, of mine, and I think you told the story great. Now, your father worked for Hustler, and that's how this, this started, right? Yeah, that's how, the, that's how the movie started. You were son of a pornographer. Yeah, and that, that you know, growing up, you have to reckon with that on some level. So, how, how, did it, how did it manifest itself in your childhood? Were you aware that Daddy worked with Dirty Pictures? Yeah, yeah. There was never <laughs> any kind of, there was, there was never a secret about it. 
In fact, I got I got to grade school and I started to think it was the coolest fucking thing in the world, you know? I'm sure all the other kids thought so. Right. And then by the time I was really conscious of Hustler, he didn't work there anymore. So he worked at like Swank and Genesis throughout the 90s when I was in high school. And then he... Then I would trade those magazines for pot, and it gave me a lot of currency. Oh, yeah. You don't need an after-school <laughs> job with a dad. Uh... Free pornography rules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it did back when, when it, when it wasn't free. That actually was the currency. <laughs> now it's totally devalued. No, no. Yeah, a good no. skin rag was definitely the coin of the Rome. So, so were, did you grow up with your? Did your uh, were your parents together when you were growing up? Yeah, they still are. They still are. So, did they? Um, did they try to protect you from the imagery at all? Like, did, were you allowed to look at like? No, oh, look, no. My dad just. They were know. in the closet, and okay. I, you know, and I and I sneak would sneak them out whenever I could, whenever they weren't home. Just but, like any other kid. Like I any mean, other kid I remember would. finding my dad's Playboys. I know. Oh. Same. It was the same thing. Oh, yeah, I remember the first penthouse I found. It was the beginning of a bountiful age of self-exploration. Yep. Ew. <laughs> That's still continuing to this day. Yet we haven't explored anything. <laughs> well, um, <coughs> um, let, me, let me ask you, I mean, Hustler Magazine, what was the surprise? What did you find out on this great mission of yours? I mean, you spoke to so many people that had worked there, I and mean, I don't think you missed uh, anybody. You spoke to everybody. Well, we spoke that to had, everyone who would talk to us. There's a lot of people who I'd like to would have spoken to, but... Whatever, they just didn't want to talk. They're just like too angry or too upset or something or too old or dead. So, I mean, you know, it's, there's that kind of thing. But um, what did I, I don't, I mean, you know, I, I think I found out that like I realized that it was much more of a social force than I thought it was, you know. And the way people look at it is that it's uh, that's like just pictures of dirty uh, you know, there pictures of naked women, but so the, much more than that. But the social commentary was really severe and really and really over the top. You know, like you know, a chest of the molester comic that appeared every month is pretty offensive to this day, and I, I like that <laughs> there, that it has something it, so offensive. The, the level of offensive humor in that magazine. I mean, I mean, the basic running gag is that a black man's lips will become adhered to any smooth surface, <laughs> right, right? And that all women live in fear of said black man's penis, and that's pretty much it. That's, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's they live in con- fear of it. That was I'm, I wasn't a hustler reader, <laughs> so I would think they would welcome the big. Well, there's a lot of castration <laughs> fear manifesting itself in the pages of Hustler. I mean, if you took a Freudian analysis at it, you know, you'd probably find that. And, you know, in Hustler, uh, Black Man's Cock is actually the size of LeBron James. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you know, it, I'm, I'm intimidated, I must say. Well, one of, one, of the sad, one of the sadder, the more poignant moments was talking to Al Goldstein more recently. I mean, when you oh, see him as a well. young psycho kind I of I love guy. that man. Yeah, he was a hero to me as well. Very, very sad when he, when he died. I mean, a real First Amendment um, hero really took the risks, really picked up the mantle where Lenny Bruce left off in many ways. You know, I, I admire him. Another Jew trying to pass, by the way. Lenny Another Bruce. Jew trying to pass. Yeah, How was he trying to pass? Uh, what was his real name? I can't remember now. <laughs> Weiss, Schultz, Jewstein, yeah, I think Goldstein. <laughs> I think Goldstein is, is a really poor attempt at <laughs> Well, Al Goldstein, the ultimate self-loathing Jew. I mean, he was the biggest anti-Semite I ever met in my life. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think why it's important people watch your movie is, I mean, we know the story. Uh, we've all worked in, in the media and in pornography. And, of course, you grew up, you know, in the long shadow of your father's dirty work. Um but people don't realize that you know that Larry Flint was a true First Amendment warrior. He's the martyr for the cause. I mean, he took a bullet, and he stood up. And uh, by any 
any definition, he is a, a, journal, a journalism hero. When he didn't, with that whole thing with the DeLorean tapes, um, and he didn't reveal the source, and he went to jail. Let me tell you something. Doing any time for a guy in a wheelchair is hard time, and he never gave up his sources. You know? I agree. I mean, that is hardcore, and I think people don't get it because the magazine is so funny, it is so outrageous, it is so offensive. What I learned from Larry Flint and Al Goldstein is that anything goes as long as you're funny. Yes. <laughs> That's not really true. Well, you know, we, we can uh, talk about uh, rape jokes and racial jokes and what's good yeah. now, but I think the PC police keep ramping up their forces. But I think in context, anything can be funny. Have you seen Louis C.K.'s stand-up back lately? It's pretty fucking out there. No, I haven't. I don't, I don't yeah, think I have. I think he's great. I, yeah. I, but I, I, I like... That's the kind of thing I like, you know? I, I think that, um, that the whole thing with Larry is that he, he will probably... The, the the Hollywood movie he made about himself didn't quite capture all that. It captured all the glory, but none of the actual details, you know? Like, that's why we went and interviewed the attorneys who were there the day he was shot. We interviewed the guy who shot him. We interviewed all the different people that we could find from every facet of every story. And at some point, there were so many lawsuits going on against Larry that we couldn't keep track. We contacted Larry's attorneys. We're like, can you make a chart? Can you maybe... They were all... There was like we have a list of all the of all the concurrent ones that they know of. Wow. So I mean that's a lot of the I mean he had a whole legal department at that time. How was he making money paying all those lawyers? Well that was my dad's issue with him. My dad was trying to put out a magazine and he's like, Everyone go and and protest at the at the uh, the Capitol steps or some story like that, right? And my dad's like, no, I gotta actually put a magazine out <laughs> so you could have the money to fight these battles. We all dig what you're doing, but like, we have to do this thing so you could do that thing, you know? That's why like, you need like, interns. <laughs> well, my dad sent all the interns. Yeah. My dad sent all the people and it became a big drama, you know, because at that point, Larry just wasn't all there, you know? He was... No, he's out of his he's fucking a megalomania. mind. Well, he has to be out of his mind. But but the thing about Larry is, and we talked about this, and this is what largely what my my book, Dirty, 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 was about, is you have these four guys who are really famous as the Skin Magazine chieftains, the, the Mount Rushmore of porn you were saying before, which is Hugh Hefner and um, Bob Guccione and our friend Al Goldstein and Larry Flint. And at the end of the day, Larry Flint's the guy who's still got a big building on Wilshire Boulevard with his name on it. Hefner is broke. Okay, Playboy, um, the magazine doesn't make any money. It's a brand. I, I, like, I like that you said it's like Sunset Boulevard over yeah. there. Yeah, he's like Larry Swanson at Sunset Boulevard, like wafting around his, his mansion bathrobe. with his fake Viagra dick watching gay porn, you know? I mean, he's like the ultimate closet queen half, and there he is rotting away, you know, to be buried like King Tut under some, you know, pyramid he's going to construct next to Marilyn Monroe. Um, Al Goldstein died penniless, heroic, but out of his fucking mind, and Bob Guccione has to be the greatest, richest rag story of all fucking time. But here's Larry... Hustler doesn't make any money. What was shocking, recently I was talking to some young people, I mean, people that, you know, it happens from time to time, Judy, don't smile, um, who didn't know what Penthouse Magazine was. They had never seen Penthouse. They had heard of Playboy, had never actually seen a copy. Okay? Hustler Magazine was something that just wasn't even in their vocabulary because kids don't look at dirty magazines kids anymore. Kids today, what the hell's wrong with that? Seriously. What's with, what's with the kids? The kids don't even know how to transgress. It's like the, it's like the, old, it's like the old people got to tell the kids how to rebel. <laughs> what the fuck is going on in this world? Um, but Larry was a businessman. That's the point I was getting to. For all the things that he did, you know, he was an uneducated, you know, hillbilly, by his own description, chicken fucker, right, you know, from Kentucky. And he was not, a, he didn't come out of the gates as a First Amendment warrior like Al Goldstein did. You know, Screw was an anti-war magazine. He had a real big chip on his shoulder about freedom. Larry, they just fucked with the wrong guy. 
And once they started the fight, he fought back, and he fought back really hard. Yeah, and that's 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 the main thing to take away from it. I think you know the main thing to be learned from it is that I don't think I don't think it's a battle Larry would have taken on if he didn't have to, but he had to. He, he had, had no to. other choice, and he actually became the martyr for the cause. I mean, it's one of those accidental sort of stories that I would say he lucked into. I mean, at some point he was very conscious of it, and he willed himself into that role further. It was well, it was fantastic. I mean, what he his, what he did in front of the Supreme Court was unbelievable. And the case against Jerry Falwell, of course, was his most famous court case. And if you if you recall, that was Jerry Falwell, the televangelist um, and an enemy of the people, <laughs> um, who had sued Larry Larry for defamation of character and emotional distress, which I, I love. Jerry Falwell, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. He's a really, real tough guy, right? Emotional distress. For um, the, the uh, parody ad that had Jerry Falwell basically losing his virginity to his mother in an outhouse. It was part of like like a fake Doer's uh, Scotch campaign. Right? It was a Campari. Yeah, it's a, a Campari. Campari. Right? Um, but Larry won the case, and because of that, it is now protected speech to make fun, to parody, to satirize public figures. And that's huge. That's a huge First Amendment presence, thanks to Larry Flynn. Oh, yeah. You know, Saturday Night Live benefited from it. Everybody um, did. Every, everybody. Every time you from listen to Howard Stern, every time you look at Saturday Night Live, every time you hear any comics routine, you got to thank Larry Flint and Al Goldstein, too, had yeah. a similar case with Pillsbury, the Pillsbury Doughboy, which he pictured fucking the dough girl. Mm-hmm. Um, he later made the joke she had a yeast infection. <laughs> but, but Pillsbury sued, you know, for like 18 bazillion dollars, and Al won the case. And corporations are considered public figures, and it's protected speech to satirize and parody um, and lampoon them as well. It's well, corporations important. are now recognized as an individual who yeah. can vote. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no reason why they can't be recognized as someone who could be made fun of as well. I mean, like, it, 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 there's two sides of that coin. Well, we should take a break now. Um, we're going to hear we're going to hear the weirdos, right? Yeah, some punk rock right from the soundtrack of right from the soundtrack. Back Issues, the Hustler Magazine story. It's uh, Mike and Judy on Arts and Seizures on the Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Foods USA has sold pasture-raised, antibiotic-free heritage meats to restaurants and homes around the country. Our farmers raise their animals with care using traditional methods guaranteed to produce the very best-tasting meat. Our pork breeds include Berkshire, Red Wattle, Duroc, Gloucester Old Spot, Large Black, and Tamworth, and our beef comes from Piedmontese, Angus Akiyushi, Belgian Blue, Highland, Simmental, and Belted Galloway cattle. We also carry a rotation of 24 rare breeds of heritage chicken, 
seasonal specialties like lamb, goat, geese, and of course, heritage turkeys. Visit us online at www.heritagefoodsusa.com or give us a call at 718-389-0985 to place your order today. Hey, I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. Do you love us? Do you really? Do you count on us for real food news and content? Oh, we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a nonprofit organization, which means we depend on underwriting, grants, and the support of members like you to keep broadcasting. Help keep our voice alive. Visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click the Donate button today. We promise to never stop in our mission to create a world that's more sustainable, equitable, and delicious by expanding the way eaters think about food. Thanks for listening, and thanks for showing your support. Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> wow. What? Wow. <laughs> Heritage Radio, you guys should pledge to it because we need the money. Yeah. Send us your money. Um, we get paid in pizza over here. Send us some dough. It was really nice to, to hear the weirdos. It's been a long time since I heard that. Pledgeertizing. By the way, I came up with a new term. Oh, good. Pledgeertizing. Flip that, that. I like that. that. I listen to NPR when I make dinner for my kid, and... I hate when they're plagiarizing. Wait, wait, wait to bore your kid to death. Yeah. I'm like, oh, money, money. He's like, I'm fucking three. <laughs> yeah, but he's got a nice tote bag that says NPR on the side of it. <laughs> Radio Lab. What, what, is it, what is it between with punk rock and pornography? Why are they like uh, soup in a sandwich? It's like pancakes and syrup know. with the punk rock and I pornography. Know, just, I think the magazine had an aesthetic that was really punk, even though I was saying to Judy off camera that they listened to country music when they were making the magazine, which... You know, it just didn't fit with what we were trying to do. We wanted it to look like the magazine, and their magazine is a product of its time, which happened to be the the apex of punk and like hardcore. Yeah, in California, yeah. and um, oh, just lost my thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that Nick Cave is still floating it's, it's around in your head. It's all that commuting I'm doing now that I'm a Queens resident. Um, no, the music is really great. What um, and I think also like country singers. If you put country music in this, they would sue you. You would never get the right <laughs> yeah. to country music. Cause I love George Jones, but I don't want to work with him. Yeah, <laughs> but the weirdos, dead or not, they'll sign over their rights. George Jones, a guy who drove his lawnmower to the liquor store because <laughs> his wife like took his keys <laughs> took away. His keys away. <laughs> yeah, I think it was his tractor to the bar. His buddies must have been psyched. <laughs> well, there's there's always been um, that sort of weird connection, sort of on the on the underground anyway. Um, in punk rock, and you do have a fantastic soundtrack uh, to, to, your, to, your, to your film. Now, I think it's an important movie. I think people need to see it because the story just isn't told enough, and people don't know. It was a magic time that will never be repeated. Print where, media, and where can people see it? Everywhere, right? Everywhere. I mean, to like us. it's available to download on every platform right now. Um, that's what? iTunes, Amazon, all the big corporations have it. And then um, same thing in the UK. And you're still you're still doing the screening circuit though a little bit, yeah? A little bit here and there. It, we don't got anything booked. It came out to uh, very good reviews though, right? And, uh, joined <clears> the reviews people. Yes. people seem to really dig the movie. People seem to really dig the movie because I think we did try to do the right thing in every case. You know, corroborated every little bit of it. Who were some of your favorite people to interview? I love the kitten that took a dad. Oh yeah, <laughs> she was she was great, and she's someone I always liked growing up because I loved the Russ Meyer and you know. Um, I think uh, I really liked. <laughs> I loved being without Goldstein. Yeah, 
uh, Harold Price Farringer was <laughs> the great Joe DiMaggio of the First Amendment. One the of my Joe DiMaggios. <laughs> and, and I just saw uh, Mr. Farringer uh, at, at a. Ben- at a uh, um, Memorial uh, service of some sort. I don't know. Oh, the describe, yeah, the Al, Al Goldstein Memorial, which was kind of, kind of a Boston way, but to see uh, Mr. Farringer, as I always call him, the, uh, the Joe DiMaggio of the First Amendment, right? His suits are amazing, and his hair is silver and spotless, and he's like 26 and 0 in front of the Supreme Court in First Amendment cases. And he's a true hero, and he's a guy who hates pornography. He thinks it's filthy and disgusting, but he thinks that people should have the right to read it in their houses, and that's how I wonder how, that's how he fell into it. I almost feel like that's a little disingenuous, because ah. he probably does really love oh, it. Oh, okay, you think Mr. Farringer's at home, like, jerking some... off to your filthy skin rag? You would think that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. <laughs> and I think that it's quite possible that he has to take that position for credibility. Mm-hmm. I, no, I'm going to stand up. I don't think this is kayfabe at all. I don't think it's a gimmick. I think he's straight up, he fell into it in upstate New York when he was sort of a a towny kind of lawyer and there's someone showing a porn movie and you know people protested and he said no you got a right to see this stuff I find it very disagreeable now given he's always said that this whole image is how he wins juries to his side because he's like them he doesn't okay, like it's a it. little kayfabe there a little kayfabe I, I think he's straight up I think uh, after spending time with the guy he um he really doesn't like pornography although I think he finds Larry and Al Goldstein very well, he said they always paid on time. And he said they were. <laughs> he said uh, he told me off camera that Al Goldstein was the funnest, the, the most fun <laughs> client you could have. Oh man, he got into so much trouble, and they both always paid their bills. Yeah. I'll say it's one thing about working for both uh, Hustler and for Screw; those checks came on time. I never had to make a phone call. Never any like you know fuck you pay me you know emails that I had to send. They always paid on time, and they paid well. They paid what they said they would always. That's good to know. No, they're very reputable guys. They're very honest guys, Larry, and uh, I think that's probably their downfall. You know, in some ways, <laughs> they're really straightforward. Or that they both became so successful. I mean, they both became so successful because they had a sense of business and a sense of entertainment and a sense of PT Barnum and all these different you know aspects that make something like that work. Yeah, Larry would have done well in the peanut butter business. I mean, he's a businessman. He was running strip clubs and he started to start a pamphlet called Hustler, which became the magazine. But he's a businessman. He's a he's in the money business. You know, yeah. The fact that there was a lot of poontang attached to it made his uh, old Kentucky heart glow. But um, I mean, he wanted to make money. He, yeah. was, he, was, he grew up in utter poverty, and that's, that's what he's all about. Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> You're all your honest truth. <laughs> I'm just still like thinking poontang. <laughs> you just yeah, don't hear really... that word. Well, I think it's like a Vietnam term. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> last, last, well, last night, last night, last night, I was asking my date what, why she liked Nick Cave so much, and she said because he sings about snatch and he really means it. He does love it. He does. <laughs> <laughs> that was apparent. He really means it. I know, and he's angry about it. And he's <laughs> like, but he, he, I think he always gets down and does what he has to do to to. I think the reason I didn't like Grinderman was the No Pussy Blues. It's like, oh, please. Oh, please. <laughs> like, what, five minutes? Even. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is a terribly sexy man. I, I was pretty much ready to do him by the end of the set mm-hmm. last me night. Me too. Him and David Bowie bring out a little latent homosexuality in me. It's okay. It doesn't have to be latent. David hey, Bowie. I'm, a, I'm here. I'm on the radio admitting it. How latent is that? <laughs> well, I see where you, you cozy up to that mic. So tell us about your, 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 new, your new project, uh, another fascinating subculture. We should talk about that uh, for I'm a second, because he- I'm very eager to see the new picture and find out what you've discovered. Me too. I'm here with my producers, John and Flynn, who are sitting next to me. We happen to be in this neighborhood working. And um, we're making a picture about the history of computer hacking before the internet. So it's like, you know, the 50s phone freaks and MIT's AI lab and all these different 
these different uh, subcultures that kind of brought everything to the internet and all the litigation. And so we just spent last weekend at the Hackers on Planet Earth conference rustling up interviews. I love the phone freakers. The phone freaks. That to me was so amazing. It's never been told in a film. I mean, it's been told in a few books. Yeah, you know? and, I mean, those people are, are folk heroes themselves. I love the amount of like social engineering that's involved in those old, ha- you know, those old stories. You know, and just also the sense of playfulness. Like some of the practical jokes, like hacking into like Walmart's intercom system, you know, just to, you know, just, just to fuck with people's heads. I love <laughs> hacking. I see it as like the, the ultimate in conceptual art. It is. I mean, remember the guy that um, hacked into the HBO stream or to a CNN feed one time? What about speaking of hacking? What about the white flags on the Brooklyn Bridge? Have you guys been following this story? And yet, no one has still claimed credit for it. And the details of it are great because the flags—they weren't white sheets, right? They were actual American flags woven that had been bleached white in sort of this, like you know, post Jasper Johns wow. sort of weirdness. And they're fucking huge. Those flags, right? I mean, they're big, fucking twenty, thirty foot flags. Two of them on the towers, but they didn't just put them up. They had to take the other ones down. And I mean, how many people yeah, do you think? Uh, I mean, I think about this. I'm surprised. Ever, how many people had to be involved in this conspiracy? I mean, it had to be a team of like seven or eight people at least, and they had to have rehearsed it. And I mean, there's a lot going on. It's, it's Ocean's Eleven kind of shit. Yeah, it's it's really great. And I love uh, the pictures of the lasagna pans over the lights. <laughs> that, so like this, they would dim them, so they had time to change them. <laughs> I think that's so cool. Yeah, well, um, I was just reading today that our, our police um, commissioner, uh, Mr. Mr. Bratton, is a little worried about this. He needs to go. Well, well I think uh, our mayor, Mr. de Blasio, had to show some sort of sense of law and order, even though, um, you know, he doesn't want to look like too much of a big liberal pussy. <laughs> He's in Italy now. He's in Italy, yeah, I know. Eating pizza with his name on it. How do these guys take time off? I don't have a fucking day off. <laughs> Bloomberg had every weekend off at his Bahama at Bahamas Island, but we never heard about it. Who the it. fuck takes a day off in New York? I thought we had to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> he's got kids. He's got priorities. I heard Obama took time off. I mean, how do you take time? I just don't get it. Yeah, I know. The President of the United States doesn't take time Talk off. Talk about stress. <laughs> <laughs> really? Really? Try making a movie about pornographers. <laughs> How long did it take you to make the movie? I mean, there was, I mean, there was a lot. Obviously, a lot of interviews with people who. My, my, my scene alone took more than a month. Your scene alone <laughs> took more than a, in scheduling makeup. <laughs> in scheduling, and then he had to have his cats done up. Right, right. No, it took about three years. Three years from you know idea to finish thing. And your, is your dad really proud? Yeah, he likes it. Yeah. I, I had this fantasy that he'd never see it. Why? <laughs> because I didn't want him to think it sucked. Because like he was kind of like the, the, the impetus for the whole thing. And there right. must be some Freudian issues under there, too. So, <laughs> Father-son pornographers. <laughs> and with that... <laughs> <laughs> it's another episode of Arts and Seizures. The fastest half hour on the internet. Uh, next week, it's my birthday. It's a Mike, Bur- it's, it's a Mike Edison uh, birthday party. I hit the big five zero, and I intend to hit it to an 110. All right. All right. So uh, let's hear it for uh, Michael Nuremberg and his movie, Back Issues, The Hustler Magazine Story. Please, everyone, check it out. I promise you it's worth your while. It's very important. For Judy and Mike and Liz in the booth here at the Heritage Radio Network, Arts and Seizures, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.